that. What's up, everybody? Good morning. Um, I got a question for us. When is the last time you looked in the mirror? Some of y'all are like, oh, this morning. <laughs> I'm not talking about nails done, hairs done, everything did. When is the last time you looked in the mirror and looked past the superficial image that you saw or the practical image that you saw and you thought about what was happening on the inside? When's the last time you examined who you are or where you are? Very recently, my wife and I jumped back into a more regular rhythm of marital counseling and I'm perfect. (laughs) I really don't understand why. I'm easy to get along with. I do everything correctly. Um, but we <laughs> that, you couldn't, Myra, you didn't have to laugh that loud. Um, the beauty of this is what I loved about counseling is you honestly get a chance to share what you really feel and be heard. And I really appreciate that. So we're in a session. My wife is sharing how she feels. And uh, our counselor is working with her to get her to really articulate how she feels. And she uses this metaphor. She says, being with him is like uh, being with a bull in a china shop. And I was like, me? (laughs) A whole me? A bull in a china shop? Like, I wanted to defend with every fiber of my being, but I listened. I listen, I listen, and then the counselor turns to me, he says, Aswan, how does it feel to hear that's how she experiences you? And then he goes, one word. It's like, man, I got many words. <laughs> one word. And I felt sad. I, I, I had this image of an old woman. I don't know why old woman, but I had an image of an old woman in a china shop having a dustpan and a broom and every day having to sweep up glass. And I'm like, man, that's not how I want my wife to experience me. Just a little advice, any relationship that you have, just remember this. Uh, People don't really care what you say. They care and remember how you make them feel. And I had to come face to face, toe to toe with this is how I'm making her feel. Despite what I do or I say, this is how I make her feel. Now, I didn't need more information from my counselor. I didn't need more tools. You know what I needed? A fundamental paradigm shift. I needed to fully be able to see and acknowledge and believe the way that she's experiencing me is not the way that I thought she was. And so I can't approach this relationship with that same paradigm. And think about it this way. We all have these paradigm shifts. Maybe some happen in the course of our everyday life. Maybe some of them happen over the course of our lives. But we all experience these type of paradigm shifts. Some of you, whether here or online, some of you believed and and maybe still believe or used to believe that you could only be whole and happy if you get married. And the paradigm shift would be that's not true. You can be whole and happy as a single person because you were created in the image of God. I won't. That's not the sermon today. <laughs> some of you might, some of you men in here, Jordan was just talking about the closing the window uh, uh, group that we're, we're starting. And some of, you, some of you men might be thinking, yo, I can't show emotion. That's weakness. I can't talk about my feelings. That's weakness. 
How could, I, how could I do that? And the paradigm shift in that is if you don't, you will remain unhealthy. Some of you might be thinking, you know what? The grass is greener on the other side. If I could just get to, if I could just be with, if I could just, the grass is greener on the other side. The paradigm shift in that is, yo, it's still problems over there too. Man, we all need these paradigm shifts. They're paramount in our life, and particularly in our spiritual life. And I'm talking about these paradigm shifts really because um, we're begin, beginning a series on the Beatitudes. And uh, the Beatitudes are, we, we're going to talk a lot more about them, but at, at their core, uh, the, the Beatitudes are going to help us realign and change our paradigm. Here's a statement that I, that I think is true for me. We grow spiritually when how we fundamentally think and what we fundamentally believe is accurately shaped by Scripture. And I believe the Beatitudes are going to take us on this journey, that it's going to up in the paradigms that you currently have. And here's the thing about a paradigm shift. Not only does it up in the way you currently think, it also replaces the old one. And so here's what I want in this series. I want you to mature. I want us to grow. I really do believe the encouragement of the Holy Spirit is for us to continue to experience the bountifulness of God's grace, the bountifulness of God's love. Well, you can't do that if you don't grow. You can't do that if you don't desire and push to grow. Uh, I think about, yo, when I was playing ball in college, imagine if I would approach playing ball in college like I did when I was in middle school. Imagine if I would approach marriage the same way I did when I was single. I believe scripture is pushing us to grow in how we think about God and how we think about ourselves. So uh, the, the Beatitudes, what are they? Kind of let, let me give us a context. They're found in Matthew 5. At least we're going to be drawing from uh, the, uh, uh, Matthew's account of the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew starts with this Sermon on the Mount, right? It's a very popular form of scripture. Uh, a lot of people have heard about it and talked about it. Even if you haven't been to church, you might have heard about it. But in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus' Jesus's longest recorded teaching. And I want us throughout this series to imagine going up on a hill and Jesus sitting a little more elevated and he's about to teach. And he's going to teach in such a way that it's going to up in the way that they think. He knows this is what they need. He knows this is what we need. He's not going to add to the knowledge they have. He's going to radically transform the way that they think. So there's, no, there's not a whole lot of parables, not a whole lot of symbolism. It's just that truth. He's just giving you raw truth to, in, to ch- help you change your paradigm. Now, these... The Beatitudes are found within the Sermon on the Mount, and there are these eight paradoxical statements that are really like grenades. These are not like simple statements that, uh, oh, you can just listen to. These are grenades to radically form the listener. And so as we embark on this series, I want you to imagine yourself sitting at the foot of Jesus with him ready to throw some grenades in your mind so that you could radically think differently about God and about yourself. Now, here's what I don't want. The Beatitudes are not statements of law, but statements of grace, okay? What does that mean? 
Well, I don't want you listening to the Beatitudes and saying, okay, these are the things for all my type A people. These are the things that I have to do so I can be saved. That's not true. That's not what this is. Secondly, they're not ethical demands, okay? So what does that mean? That means I don't want us taking these eight paradoxical statements and then looking around, <laughs> looking at other people and say, you know what, uh-huh. excuse me, you're not being persecuted enough. Uh, you're, not, you're not a Christian. Move next. Like, these are not ethical demands that I want you to, to try to examine someone's Christian life with. Amen? Does that make sense? Lastly, the Beatitudes are not just blessings because here's what Jesus does. He pronounces blessings on a peculiar group of people, a group of people that the audience would have been like, I don't know why he's blessing them, right? But these blessings are not just for heaven. These blessings are, are meant for them to experience here on earth, but they will experience the fullness of these blessings in heaven, okay? So those are the th- that's the framework that I want as we dive in. Listen to uh, Matthew's account Uh, of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we are going to unpack these statements. And like I said, I want you to almost imagine yourself sitting on this mountaintop, listening to Jesus proclaim these blessings so that your paradigm can be changed. But I want to focus on Matthew uh, 5.3. I want to focus on the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so as we unpack this, here's the first piece to us unpacking this. First, everything in the Bible is written for us, but nothing was written to us. I'll say that again. Everything written in the Bible was written for us, but nothing was written to us. So here's the worst thing you could do this morning. The worst thing you could do is stop and say, okay, what does this portion of Scripture mean to me? What what does it mean to me? Rather, the healthiest thing, the healthier thing that I want you to do is I want you to think about this passage of Scripture and ask the question, how would Jesus' audience have heard this? And let me tell you why that's important. That's an important principle because unintentionally we are going to take our cultural lens to this Scripture when we read it, Okay. We're going to think when we hear poor in spirit, we may think, maybe not everybody, unintentionally, we may think of a rags to riches type of story. Uh, I I love documentaries. And so I was watching um, uh, Always Believe. It's a documentary about Muggsy Bogues. And somehow we have some weird resemblance. I don't know. Like, 
I'm, I'm just not that tall, you know, and I don't, I don't know how he would describe himself. But, but the dope thing about Muggsy's story is his name is Tyrone Bogues. They called him Muggsy because he was mugging people on the court. He was always stealing the basketball. That's how he got his nickname. But he grew up in the, uh, um, the projects in Baltimore. And the, the uh, interviewer asked him, hey, what, uh, what did you do that when you, because so he made it, he went to college, got a scholarship to college. Uh, he made it, he was drafted like ninth or 12th or something like that in the NBA. Uh, and he became this NBA uh, star. And they asked him, what was the first thing you did? And he said, the first thing I did was I bought my mother a house. And I watched this dude cry profusely. And yo, we all love a rags to riches type story. The, the documentary was good because it, it, it uh, showed us his life and all the ways he grinded, all the ways he pushed through being 5'3", when the, NBA, the average NBA player was 6'6". It showed us every element of his life from a kid to when he became successful, how known he is in Baltimore. This rags to riches story in our American culture, we want to celebrate that. However, in the context of the Bible, that's not how it would have been perceived in ancient Israel. That's not how they would have understood when they heard the word poor in spirit. In fact, in ancient Israel, basically the difference between rich and poor was based on land ownership. And check this out. The only way to legally acquire property in ancient Israel was through inheritance. There was actually biblical laws against getting property any other way. In Leviticus, it says, but the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. So here's what they would have understand. In ancient Israel, if you were poor, that means your mama was poor, your daddy was poor, your great-granddaddy was poor, your family line, there, there are no... Uh, social ladders. There is no weaving in and out of social classes because of your work. So if you were poor, the only chance you had of changing your status was through inheriting something you could never earn. The only way you could change your status is to inherit something that you did not earn. And inheritance is based on relationships not works. So peep, Jesus is sitting on the mount. He says, uh, he's sitting on the hill. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Grenade. Bomb. <laughs> they like, yo, okay, so he must be bugging. Why is he saying that the blessed are the poor in spirit? The, the people who should be blessed are the, are the righteous people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who are closest to God. How, what does he mean that the, that the poor in spirit are blessed? It feels like they got the short end of the stick. If they can't maneuver through their own merit to, to, to change their social class, how could they be blessed? And here it is. Here's the gospel. Jesus hits them with that truth. He says, yo, I am their inheritance. I am the one who's closest to the poor. I go to the people on the margins. It's the, it's the, the cross is such a paradox. It's the king who says, I'm going to die for the servant. It's the righteous one saying, you know what? I'm going to not hold my righteousness. I'm going to die for the unrighteous. 
What Jesus is saying here is that, listen, the spiritual poor, uh, uh, the people who are poor in spirit, they're blessed because they realize and live from the reality of their own spiritual bankruptcy. They fully grasp and they fully realize that they have nothing that they can do on their own. There is no merit. There are no things that they could actually accomplish so that they could be in right relationship with God. Those are the people that are blessed. And man, what a paradigm shift. What a change of perspective. They would have thought, yo, Jesus with the, the, the elite, the spiritual elite are the ones that are supposed to be blessed. Here's the paradigm shift that Jesus wants you and I to have. Jesus wants us walking away from this passage of scripture, not more confident in our ability, but more confident in our inability. Jesus wants us to walk away, not more confident in ourselves, but less confident in ourselves. The beauty of the cross is that the God of the universe, with all power in his hands, the one who owned all, gave it all. And he's saying, the people who step to the plate and realize, yo, Lord, I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to give you. In fact, all I've done is turn my back on you. Then he places the blessing. Then he offers you life and life in abundance. To the Christians in the room, what would happen if you fully embrace this? Because here's what I imagine. Some of you in the room, you've heard this. <laughs> you, you've experienced this. You know this theologically maybe. But I wonder what your everyday life looks like. I wonder if you are still uh, a bull in a china shop and you don't care how anybody else experiences you. I wonder if your orthodoxy doesn't match your orthopraxy. I wonder if your... Your theology, the way you think, doesn't match the way you live. That's basically the knock on the church. We haven't grown to the place where what we believe is actually oozing out of our lives. Jesus is saying the people who are poor in spirit already know. They've already embraced that when I come to God, I have nothing to bring. Jesus wants you walking away from today. Embracing your inability, not your ability. He doesn't want you to walk away today feeling more confident in yourself, but more reliant on him. And here's the thing. Vulnerability is hard. I believe that. But vulnerability is where Jesus starts. Yo, I had the paradigm shift. I realized that this is how my wife was experiencing me. And I'm like, yo, part of me wanted to say, yo, yo, you should have created a different China shop. You know you married a bull. You know who I is. I was who I was when you got here. But yo, how selfish, how selfish would that be? Instead of me just being a bull, expecting her to change the china shop, I needed to become a bull who knew ballet. Right? I needed to be able, I needed to, to with, with all compassion, when I walk through the china shop and I break something, I need to be accountable for that. 
When I, when I step in it, when, I, when, I, uh, when she's experiencing me that way, I need to say, you know what? I hear you. I understand how you feel and not try to defend it. Jesus is saying to the poor in spirit, if you want to become poor in spirit, because they had to be listening, saying, okay, okay, maybe my paradigm is shifting. I'm starting to understand, but how do I do this? How do I become poor in spirit? Jesus would say, humble yourself. Look at this example. And the Beatitudes don't give us the full picture, so we look at, at the other parts of Jesus' teaching. Listen to this in Luke 18. We get an example of what it looks like, uh, starting at verse 9. This is Jesus talking he also told his, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Listen to this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one, on a, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. Now, look, really quick, I know we might, yo, I would imagine the spirit of your prayers might have hints of this. I'm going to challenge the Christians in the room. It might not be this overt. That's why it's a parable. But, man, I ask you to look in the mirror. You, some of us have prayed this prayer, just not these words. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Now listen to the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but keep striking his chest, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I pray that you are bold enough, that you are strong enough to humble yourself. It takes strength and courage to be humble. And I'm amazed that Jesus uses this blessed are the poor in spirit to help the audience realign how they think about themselves so they can see God more accurately. You and I are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to give God, yet he graciously lavishes on us his death and his resurrection so that our inheritance can be that of an heir, of a rich person. Our, social, our spiritual social class can't change on our own. It only changes because Jesus gave his life for us. And look, I'm not saying this just to you. I'm talking to me too. Yo, Aswan, you need to be humble, bro. The, the truth of the matter, is, I, I understand how hard this is. But, but humility is where Jesus starts. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, which means you and I can do it. What we can do is humble ourselves. One who humbles, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I want to give you some practical things to walk away with from this sermon with. 
I want to give us four humble or hum- humble inducing, humility inducing statements. Right, Jess? I got to get my grammar right. Um, I want you to take these statements, whichever one of them or all of them, I want you to write them down and I want you to write them over, rehearse them over and over and over again. I want you to take a, some, find a little sticky note or something. I want these to be the things this week that you meditate on. Not only the statement, but the scriptures that I'm going to give us with these statements. All right. Statement number one. I depend on God's wisdom, not my own. I depend on God's wisdom, not my own. And listen, shout out to all the gut leaders in the room. I'm a gut leader. There are things that I just feel like are right. When I rely on that, I can hurt people. When I rely on it only. Because there is some good to it. But the better thing is to depend on God's wisdom. It's so easy in our information age that we think we can just grab information and figure everything out. But you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. You know what we struggle with? Application. They just sit on our phones. Proverbs 3, 5 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, some translations say acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Every day we remember, we need to make the choice to say this to ourselves. And then I want us to go to the scripture and I want us to hear from God's wisdom. God's wisdom and his word are one. Second statement, I depend on God's strength, not mine. And I'm telling you, this was a paradigm shift for me. I used to think I could just muster up all the strength needed to have a good marriage. That in my strength, I could take care of any situation. But it's not true. And even biblically, that's not true. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Here's the scripture uh, I want you to uh, think about. Concerning this, in verse, uh, oh, uh, uh, what is this, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, starting at verse 9, uh, verse 8. Oh, excuse me. I don't know where I'm starting. Listen to this. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Some of us have pleaded with the Lord. I have pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness, so that Christ's power may reside in me. If you don't boast of your weakness, your own power resides in you. You don't make room for the Holy Spirit. So, verse 10, I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And listen, I want to be sensitive to all of those. I mean, we know what's happening in our world, in our country. Um, we, I want to be sensitive to those who are feeling uh, persecuted and have hardships. It, the scripture is never negating the feelings that come with that. What it's doing is giving us hope and saying in the midst of that, do not 
uh, boast in the fact that you have the strength to get through it, vulnerably continue to go to God because in the kingdom of God, weakness is met with his strength. Strength is, is the thing that culture continues to celebrate in the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God, weakness wins. It's the most feeble. It's the weakest that he comes to. Man, that's good news. Why do I want to be strong all the time? Because I was taught that. My culture nurtured me to be that. I, had to, I'm, I'm, I wasn't the tallest guy, so I even had to be a little stronger for that reason. But my paradigm needed to shift in the kingdom of God. God, I ain't got it. I'm not strong enough for this situation. I need your wisdom and I need your strength. Third statement. I depend on God's timing, not mine. See, while we are waiting, you have to remember this. While you are waiting, God is working. While you are waiting, God is working. Before you started waiting, God was working. I depend on God's timing, not my own. I heard a preacher once say, the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. Last statement, fourth statement. Oh, excuse me. I always do this. I did this in the first service. The scripture that goes with waiting, uh, I depend on God's timing, is Psalm 31. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe your time is in God's hand? I don't want you just to believe it for Things like death or life or the big things, even the small things that you're waiting for, God will meet you there. Last statement, so I can get out of here. I depend on God's righteousness, not my own. To the spiritually poor in the room, to those of us who are encouraged today to live out of our spiritual poverty, the statement I want you meditating on is... I depend on God's righteousness. It's God who decided to bridge the chasm between us and him. He decided to take off eternity, to step into time, to take on human nature, to die a criminal's death while being innocent so that you and I, and raise on the third day with all power in his hand so that you and I, could be in right relationship with God. It's the truth of the gospel. Why depend on your own righteousness? You ain't got none. I depend on God's righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.